Tēnā koutou katoa. Mōrena, nau mai, hāri mai. Welcome to Q&A. I'm John Campbell, standing in for Jack Tame, who has finally succumbed to his first bout of COVID. We are delighted to report he's doing it pretty well. Take care of yourself, Jack. Today, an extended sit-down with Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. There are at least 50,000 children in severe poverty or deprivation. This is simply neglect. Now, I remember you in 2017 selling me a vision that you were going to do something about that. And we have. I stand firmly and proudly on what we have done. The Prime Minister joining us at length. We recorded that interview at the Labour Party conference. We're heading out there in a sec. Also this morning, we ask what will happen to the Māori Health Authority under a potential national government. Dr Shane Rithi, about seven metres away from me in the green room, waiting to come on live. And check this out. This is how they do an election campaign in the USA. We don't need a walker. We need somebody who will be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Georgia, I need you to know the slave Negroes y'all are used to don't live here no more. Incredible. I sure do it differently in the US. We are joined by Anna Burns Francis talking about the midterms, the crucial midterms, later in the programme. But we begin this morning closer to home at the Labour Party conference where later today the PM Jacinda Ardern, who is our guest shortly, will be making some kind of policy announcement right now. She is a PM under a bit of siege. Inflation has soared this year, leaving much of New Zealand less well off than it was before. They're also under the pump in the polls after about six months of being neck and neck with National and even slightly behind. We're joined now by One News political reporter Benedict, senior political reporter Benedict Collins in the sparkling Auckland sunshine live at the scene of the Labour Party conference. Benedict, uh, it's lovely to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. You were there yesterday, you were there on Friday afternoon. What's the mood? Yeah, morning, John. Yeah, look, I think the mood here, I'd describe it as realistic. I think pretty much all Labour supporters, you know, and their politicians as well, they think they're in for a real fight next year. They think a lot of their supporters yesterday were telling me it's too close to call. And I think they're also realistic about what you're talking there in the intro, that a lot of New Zealanders are doing it tough with the cost of living. A lot of people are struggling at the moment, you know, and that's always kind of bad news for a sitting government. Yeah. I, I want to talk about a particular feature of, of this conference, Benedict. Uh, we were out there yesterday afternoon uh, shooting an interview with the PM and I noticed a, a, a quite a few police officers around. You're saying it's even more striking this morning, is it? Oh, absolutely. So just to drive in here, you've got to show your uh, your Labour Party pass, even just to get in past the Māori wardens who are controlling all the traffic. There's a, uh, a private security company uh, working on the door, and they're searching everyone's bags, going right through all of them. About a minute and a half ago, I saw Cabinet Minister Aisha Virrell having her bags searched um, by the private security team. They're going right through everything, so they're certainly not taking any chances. And there are heaps of police here today, all with tasers. They're going around, they're doing sweeps around the building, I've probably seen 15, 20 police officers here this morning, so a big increase. And you know, it's just something I have not seen at a political party conference before. You know, conferences, other conferences you go to, there might be a couple of police officers there, but pretty much nothing else. Yeah, that that speaks of tense times, doesn't it? It's a somewhat sad development. Let's talk about what's going to happen today. And I want to look back over the past couple of days, particularly what Grant Robertson was talking about yesterday. But let's try and preview uh, the Prime Minister's speech. Now, I spoke to her yesterday and she was giving us nothing on it. What's your sense of what she's going to do and what she has to do, Benedict? 
Yeah, I, I suspect they're going to make some sort of announcement around the cost of living crisis. The government's been clear it wants to do more to help Kiwis who are struggling. But also I think they're, you know, it's, it's pretty tight financial time, so they're, they're probably limited in what they can do. But I'd be expecting some sort of announcement around that cost of living um, crisis, helping people cop. Um, cope with that today. But yeah, they, they aren't giving too much away just yet. No, they, are, they sure aren't. Well, I guess this is a, a big set-piece moment, right? Let's talk about Grant Robertson. Uh, when yeah. he delivered his speech, I asked you afterwards, I said, it felt almost like the speech of an opposition politician. He was going after Luxon and his tax policies are uh, so hard. What did you make of what Grant Robertson was doing yesterday? Yeah, I, 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 th I thought it was interesting. I mean, I always kind of enjoy a political burn, and, and Grant Robertson was really giving it to Christopher Luxon, you know, going on about how he might be flipping burgers at, at McDonald's, but the only people he's serving are the wealthy. You know, just burn after burn like that from Grant Robertson, really focused on, um, you know, the National Party leader, uh, Christopher Luxon. Yeah, I, I thought that was kind of interesting that they went down that line. And if I was the National Party, they did give us a statement yesterday saying, you know, the government should be more focused on the New Zealanders that are, that are struggling rather than engaging in these petty personal attacks. But, yeah, I think if I was the National Party, I'd be pretty uh, pretty happy that the government's spending most of it, well, a lot of its uh, conference talking about you and your leader, uh, given he hasn't been in, um, in, in Parliament or leader for that long. Yeah, I'd take that as a bit of a win if I was the National Party. Uh, Dr Shane Reddy from the National Party joining us shortly. Benedict, it's a busy old day out there and we look forward to your report on the Prime Minister's speech on One News tonight. Thanks so much, Senior Political Reporter Benedict Collins in the Auckland Sunshine. Lovely to talk to you, Benedict. Welcome. Well, yesterday afternoon we went out to exactly where Benedict is now to speak to the Prime Minister. Only her second interview on Q&A this year. I'm sorry I'm here and not Jack. It's terrible. Oh, I hope he has a speedy recovery. Yeah, so do I. Are we worried about the Rona cases going up? Are we worried about it? Well, actually, I mean, this is what we predicted. Uh, and I remember at the time that we removed many of our restrictions, we did say we are expecting just that extra wave before Christmas, right on as predicted, it, it has arrived. Looking at the case numbers, they are starting to look like they're peaking and coming away. I don't want to speak too soon, uh, but that's, that's starting to look like the way it may turn. Roughly 320 people in hospital, right? Are we, are we taking this seriously enough? Have we gone from one extreme, which was lockdowns, to the other, which seems to be prima facie, not very much at all? A good question. First thing, on the hospital numbers, keep in mind that that may as well be people who have both COVID but another cause for their admission. Uh, we have continually taken it seriously and it's one of the reasons why as a country, unlike some others who have removed the requirement to isolate when you have COVID, we have not taken that step. It is one of the most fundamental things you can do to reduce transmission and we're holding on to it. Right, I want to move on. We are at the Labour Party conference. Mm. Uh, what's the mood like downstairs? Well, welcome. Um, do you know, one of the things I've always observed is no matter what, we have a very optimistic and buoyant group of members and supporters and you can feel the the energy of people being able to come back together and I feel that actually in a number of forums where you see people coming together for the first time uh, after quite a delay. I also feel the energy building towards of course the next election so for our conference this is our last regular conference before we move into election years so things really gearing up in that regard. Hamilton West by election right December 10th. Yep. How keenly are you going to fight that? Because I was surprised by how little 
I saw of you in Tauranga. In fact, did you go to Tauranga at all? Was poor old Jan Tanetti fighting that on her own? I was scheduled to. There were, unfortunately, a couple of things that arose during that period totally out of everyone's control that um, meant that I wasn't able to get there in the end. Hamilton West, you will see me there. Uh, and what I'd say there is uh, us just talking uh, a little bit about some of the things we're up against will not change the energy that we bring that to that election, the support we have for our candidate and the fact that we will give it our all. But, however, I also factor in that Hamilton West, I don't believe, has been well served by what's happened recently. Our job is to try and make sure that we earn people's votes regardless of that. OK, I want to separate the C. You're talking about Gaurav Sharma there, right? Yeah, I am. OK, but what about the picture that they're more likely to vote on, which is inflation? And if we look at that electorate, uh, it's, this is a funny old word, average, and it sometimes is a bit pejorative, but they're a really good average electorate. And roughly 14% of the population has household incomes of between 50 and 70,000. Mm. Roughly 14% of Hamilton West mm. has household incomes of between 15, uh, 50 and 70,000. How are they going in the squeeze with inflation? How are they going? Oh, and look, they, they are squeezed. And that is, you know, something we've said is one of the reasons why a big focus for us right now, and even I predict going into the next year, will be the cost of living, will be the economy. For us, it's about finding answers that won't, they, we know they can't take away everything that households are experiencing, but try and reduce what is an international phenomena right now, but try and reduce it for our people as much as we can. And that's why we had, of course, the cost of living payments targeted to low and middle income earners. But they're They've reduced. Over. They're finished. They are done for now, but we keep reviewing what we can do to support people through. But in a targeted way, the reason we did those payments and we did fuel tax and we did public transport and the family tax credit was you knew that if it wasn't targeted and time limited, we run the risk of seeing what's happened in the UK. Okay, so, so if you do something too broad-based, it makes inflation worse. So those three monthly payments are over. Yeah. Uh, the excise tax on fuel, that's going to end at the end of January, isn't it? It extends into January. We've said that we'll keep looking at what's happening at the pump at that time. Same with public transport. That, that continues for community uh, service card holders. Uh, and the family tax credit, of course, that was permanent. But we will keep reviewing, and we've said this, what other things we can do. What do you say to people who are doing it really, really tough now? Now, I watched Grant Robinson on the telly the other day talk about an unemployment rate of, what is it, 3.3%, which is historically low. It is. And that's fantastic because yes. work is dignity, right? Yeah. But he said, you know, and there are events beyond our control. And I felt like he was telling a story that wasn't going to connect with people who are feeling squeezed. Mm. They don't care if there's a wheat shortage in Ukraine. They don't care if commodity prices are up because of Russia's invasion. They don't, people don't care. But, but what they do care is what we as a government do. And, you know, here so, what, said, so what are you doing? And as I've said, you know, you've seen you know, the hardest point of this. It looks as if New Zealand relative to the other countries who in some cases have not yet peaked. Not only did we remain at the bottom pack in the OECD of those who experienced that high inflation, we are one of the few countries that are looking like it's starting to peak and come away. Are you saying 7.2 is the peak? We are, certainly, that seems to be what forecasters are predicting. And that is different to what we're seeing uh, with other countries at this point of time. But it doesn't mean that we don't keep looking at what we can do. So as I've said, that reduction at the pump made a difference. We know the family tax credit increase, which helped a significant portion of families working and not working, public transport, and of course, those one-off payments. But we keep looking at what more we can do. The problem is stimulus equals inflation, doesn't yeah. it? And this is the bind. Yes, so, it does. So, so how do you get on top of inflation without 
hurting people who are already hurting. This is the, coming back to what you were reflecting about what our Minister of Finance was saying. You were saying that you felt that disconnected people from what he was saying, and yet what he's setting out is actually some of what's happening to us. It's very hard for us as a government to control the direct causes. But, but, but I think, but, sorry, sorry to interrupt, I think we do macro politics when we feel good. I think when times are tough, we go really micro and we stay in our households and we think, how are we going? What, what are you saying to the people who are in their households? And their answer to that question is, we're not going very good. No, my point, what I would say to households is even if uh, for the large portion of what we are experiencing are beyond our control, it doesn't mean that we cannot play a role in assisting you. So that what is the role? What is, what is the role? Job. And as I've just, I've just set out, our role ease that pressure, don't make it worse. So, of course, in this situation, it is about which plan is going to work best. We've been targeted, we've been timely. We're trying at the same time to get some of the root causes of some of those issues in the grocery sector as well. A blanket tax cut, for example, is a policy that would make it worse. And that is not what we want for our families right now. You're talking about Christopher Luxon and National there, aren't you? Well, of course, because and, we and, do and have to compare, you know, and, what are absolutely. the alternatives? Although we're not talking about, we're talking about a blanket tax cut. The Nats are talking about a blanket tax cut for people on the 39% rate, right? But actually, their threshold creep, so which is... So they're talking which, about an entire package, right? Yeah, so they're but, talking about take off the top tax rate, first of all, have a number of changes across the board and, for instance, make changes to even what we've done uh, to try and make housing more accessible. So there's a whole raft in there. I don't want to talk about National because you're the Prime Minister of no, New I Zealand. Not and, well. and you are And you are a <laughs> Labour Prime Minister. So uh, what are you going to do? I mean, you can't turn up in Hamilton West and say, hey, we're here to not make it worse. Well, and nor am I. But what we've said is everything that we've done to date, and I don't think you should write off what we've done over the past, you know, six to 12 months, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of direct investment into families' pockets as quickly as we could. That IRD payment, that hasn't been done before. The family tax credit increase, it wasn't just a CPI adjustment, it was more than that. We adjusted it to try and uh, make an impact for families. It's hundreds of millions to take off that extra cost at the pump. We did all of that to try and ease that pressure. And as I say, you'll hear me talk a little bit in this constrained environment we're in. You'll talk me a little bit more today about what more we think we can do. You're clever because you said today because this interview is going to air on Sunday, right? <laughs> well, you're just blowing it now, haven't you? Yeah, well, Except for the fact I'm wearing this same outfit. Okay, so this afternoon, <laughs> wink, wink, because we're recording this on Saturday afternoon. So well, this is confusing now. It feels like we're in a vortex. But when you make your speech, you are announcing what? I'm not going to be sharing it here. You sh no, but if you believed in public media, you would. <laughs> Announce it now, Prime Minister. That is some great spin. That's some great spin. You have to pick a point when you share I, I, it. I'm staggered to see Norman Kirk downstairs. You mentioned Norman Kirk on Friday. What, yeah. what, 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 what's 50 the last? Fifty years. Fifty years. Okay. It's fifty years since he was in office, and you know, I think I didn't. I didn't really see Norman Kirk downstairs. I saw his face. Yeah, the way you yeah, said yeah, that, yeah, just, yeah, it yeah. shocked me somewhat. But fifty years since he's been in office, and you know, we're reflecting on Friday the lessons that are be, to be learned there, and these two for me. One is. He experienced crises, international events that were significant, and yet that government made progress regardless, and we have too. And the second is that when they had experienced, you know, real shocks in the economy, it was always about what can we do to support people coming through. And what's been done there, uh, you can see a similar set of values playing out for us now. As you're talking, I'm thinking what happened to Labour in 75, right? Norman Kirk died, 74, 75. Yeah. Oh, well, of course, yeah, those... Yeah. yeah. And then Labour got 
a bath at the hands of Rob Muldoon, right? So, so how important is your leadership? I was leadership? drawing a comparison on the great leadership yeah. of Kirk through tough times. Yeah. How important is your leadership? Oh, leadership matters, of course. Record matters and experience oh. matters. And we'll be campaigning on all of those things in the next election. Do you still have the heart for it? I'd like to think you can see that, you know. And when I'm here talking about, you know, what we've managed to do over the last five years, it reminds me that, yes, I'm proud of everything, but do I feel like we've completed it? No. Uh, what, haven't, what haven't you completed? Well, none of them are things that I think you put in a tidy box because our list were things when we came in that had been a priority all the way through housing. We're building, you're seeing 20,000 more houses built a year than when we came into office. Uh, child poverty, 66,000 kids out of poverty, but that's not enough in my book. Climate change, of course, we've put in the foundations for reform there, but of course, there's a lot more to do. So for me, it's about, yes, we've made progress, but we chose such big issues that they do take time. Oh, you've raised a lot, and I want to go on and talk about climate change because that's sure. so important, and I don't, mm. I don't think we talk about it enough. But I want to talk about housing, sure. and I've been printing stuff out because, you know, I love to turn, turn up with child poverty action. I love to quote what they're saying to you. The Salvation Army says the housing catastrophe is at the heart of many of the challenges local communities are facing. Got a really good new series in the Rotorua Daily Post talking mm. about what's going on in Rotorua. We've got child poverty action. I want to read you this because it's really, really strong. And that is about... Uh, those at the bottom, mm. right? Uh, all around one in five Pacific children live in material hardship. Mm -hmm. The rate for Māori is one in three mm -hmm. compared to the national average of one in ten. And then, and I quote, this is Alan Johnson, who was a good, sound, rational man. I quote, there are at least 50,000 children in severe poverty or deprivation. This is simply neglect. Now, I remember you in 2017 selling me a vision that you were going to do something about that. And... We have. I stand firmly and proudly on what we have done. We have turned around all of the child poverty measures, which we made sure that for the first time we were properly measuring, properly reporting, including proper data on Māori and Pacific kids and kids with disabilities and families with disabilities. And all nine of those measures, we are finally starting to see them turn. They're decreasing. Now, for me, any level of child poverty in New Zealand, of course we don't want to tolerate. We're a wealthy society. But we are turning those stats around, and it's for a reason. We've increased main benefit rates significantly. We, of course, made changes to accommodation su supplement. We're building more public houses. We've introduced free lunches in schools with the lowest decile kids, and we're delivering a million a week. You know, that kind of uh, support does make a difference to the overall well-being of our families. Now, is it all What's that could be wrong? done? What's gone wrong? It's funny, isn't it? Because on the one hand, delivering a million school lunches a week seems like a good thing to do. On the other hand, why the hell do we need a million school lunches a week in this land of milk and I have and to honey? say, I mean, for a long time I actually resisted the idea of food in schools because of that very thing. Because I want families to have the dignity to provide for themselves. Isn't that your job as a Labour Prime Minister Absolutely. to give them that? Absolutely. And you know, you've seen even in since 2019 a 17% increase in wages because we want people to have the dignity of well-paid work. And we are making a difference there too. But am I willing to see kids in the meantime struggling if there's something we can make a difference on? In the end, no. So we're doing both.
This is the first part of our interview with the Prime Minister, Ihariakine. After the break is our climate policy based on hypocrisy. We are looking at climate change and what we are doing about it. More from the PM next. Welcome back to Q&A. We're delighted to have your company. In a short time, a gathering of world leaders will descend on Egypt for the latest COP climate summit. New Zealand will be represented by Climate Minister James Shaw, not the PM who won't be attending. But if Jacinda Ardern was to go, would she have a worthwhile record to defend? This is, of course, the Prime Minister who made the claim that climate change is the nuclear-free moment of her generation. And has the reality matched that rhetoric? Boy, there's so much going on in the world, isn't there? The COP climate, the COP climate summit coming up. Why, why aren't you going? I know James Shaw is going. Why yeah. aren't you going? So a couple of things. Unfortunately, the East Asia summit in APEC, right. it, it clashes right in there. And, and of, of course, given the geopolitical issues we have in the region, I felt confident uh, that, of course, with our climate minister, who has represented us so well every time, that we will be well represented. Well, of course, no one, unfortunately, can replace me at APEC. OK, let's talk about uh, the 2030 targets, right? A full two-thirds of our emissions cutting plan, this is for the 2030 targets, yep. will have to come from buying carbon credits, credits offshore. That's because, of course, as you'll know, we have increased our nationally determined contribution. We've increased our ambition in doing our part. But buying carbon credits offshore, two-thirds. You know, when we talk about New Zealand and what we're proud of, we say women's suffrage. Imagine if we said, we're not going to have the vote here, we'll get some women and we'll give the vote to some women in Belgium. I mean, isn't it what we do here that We matters? have to make sure we reduce our emissions in New Zealand. And of course, we are playing catch up. Now we have in place an emissions reduction plan and we are doing a huge amount. Just the work we've done with companies to convert from using, for instance, coal boilers in their production facilities has reduced a million tonnes of emissions. But... Unfortunately, given the lag time of implementing these changes and seeing the effects, yes, we are having to do more offshore. Now, should it always be that way? No. That's why we're recycling everything out of the ETS back into technology, innovation and transition to speed it up. John, I mean, we are throwing everything at this. You know at the moment we're having a big debate about the fact that we want to finally price the one part of our system that is not currently priced. Almost half of our emissions come from the agricultural sector. And I, and I want to come back to that. I want to talk, you say you talk about coal, removing coal boilers from schools. Yep. Uh, that's 35,000 tonnes over 10 years. Uh, or in real terms, not even a percent of a percent of a percent of our annual carbon emissions. In but other words, we're tinkering at the edges. No, we, if that were the only thing we were doing, but it's not. As I said, 53 businesses we worked with to speed up their transition, given their contribution to our overall profile. We have, uh, we have of course, decreased the amount of emissions from imported cars by 15% in six months. We are now one of the world-leading countries for the number of uh, EVs relative uh, to our population and size that have being imported into this country. We are having to sprint because we weren't even walking before. No, but if we talk about uh, a clean car discount, right? That's mm. about 9 million tonnes over 30 years or about 0.4% of our annual emissions in a given year. Again, again it's just little drops. Well, no, well, again, here I would say it's because there are a range of things that, in all told, contribute to our emissions profile. And we have to make sure we take action across all of them. So, yes... Uh, light vehicles and transport, but also heavy vehicles, uh, the way that we produce and manufacture, uh, the way that we heat or insulate our homes, and, of course, what we do on agriculture. That is half 
of our emissions, and yet of course it's been excluded until now. This is a huge area where if New Zealand gets in front of this, we have the opportunity to share with the world some solutions on how to reduce food production emissions. Dear in New Zealand, so you raised the elephant in the room, which is in fact a cow, right? Agriculture in New Zealand. Dear in New Zealand says, actually, they don't like the plan so much that they think no plan is better than your current plan. It's actually, I've seen those comments and that's not how I would phrase them. You know, we have a, an opportunity in time. I think they said no plan, uh, a bad, no plan is better than a bad deal. No yes. deal is better than a bad deal. But it doesn't mean that they, of course, weren't at the table for Hikawaki Kanoa and supported it. We have said that there are some... They supported it until they didn't like, they didn't like your changes. Oh, look, again, I, they have not walked away from the proposal and they continue to work with us on finding solutions. And that is the most important thing right now when we are in consultation. And I do want to hear those solutions. But here's my view. You know, there is no doubt for me, I have sat in the middle of these negotiations that we've done uh, and been on the periphery of them for the UK and the EU to get greater access for our products on the world stage. This stuff matters to the world. And I do not want to be in a situation where New Zealand waits too long to act and we are then punished in our marketplaces that matter to us because we didn't do what we needed to do on climate action. And that's what this is about. Some complain that by being first we disadvantage ourselves. I disagree. We advantage ourselves if we get it right. But here, let's be pragmatic and work together. So what do you say to Groundswell? What do you say to Federated Farmers? What do you say to Dairy New Zealand? Because whatever you're saying currently, they're not listening or, or they're not convinced. Yeah, and, and look, and there's I'm, a range. I, I, I want to hear your answers because it's really important. But we're also told, of course, that James Shaw is a consensus politician, but we can't seem to forge a consensus with our farmers. What do we do? I, I still maintain that we have that possibility. We've just got to keep talking and listening to one another. Now, look, there are some, there are some within the sector, not by and large the ones that um, we interact with, engage with, who don't want to do anything. But that's actually not the experience for the vast majority of those that I've engaged with. They understand that we can't have a situation where we're not doing anything on half of our emissions profile, almost half. So the vast majority completely understand that. It's all about what we do and how we do it. Can I raise briefly the question of uh, the merger between RNZ and TVNZ? Oh, sure. And I, I apologise to our audience if they think I'm being self-interested. <laughs> but look, people who watch Q&A will yep. clearly be interested in public media. Yeah, absolutely. And I suspect a lot of them will listen to RNZ too. What the hell is this merger designed to achieve? It's designed to future-proof us and to make sure we have you know, the best possible opportunity for our public broadcasters uh, and their audience to gain access to information when they need, when they need it, to have content and stories that tell our stories and are specific to us in a changing environment. You know, you know that actually the number of people over a short period of time that are accessing radio in a traditional way uh, that in the past web access it has decreased by about 20%. I think TV, it's gone from something like 80 to 50. We know the environment's changing. We have to give the possibility for our public service broadcasters to not just survive, but thrive in that world. In order to thrive, we have to be trusted. Mm -hmm. And in order to be trusted, we have to look separate from the government, right? Yep. Now, under the legislation, an autonomous Crown entity, which mm -hmm. this will be, has mm -hmm. less statutory independence than the current Crown entity company, which is the status held by RNZ and TVNZ. Mm -hmm. 
Why on earth would you do that? Oh, look, there is no question here a fundamental principle of editorial independence will and must be preserved through these reforms. No question. Because one of the things that's in the back of my mind right now, John, is that, you know, globally we're seeing increasing concern, and that includes in New Zealand, around the issue of mis- and disinformation. Having the ability to access information people trust is so important. So whatever we need to do to give people that assurance, we'll keep looking around at how we do that. But it's not just editorial independence when we look at how we structure an entity. There's a whole lot of other things at play that determine what an entity looks like. <laughs> Is it you looking at the time or just... <laughs> I was just thinking, I, I, I mean, we're out of time. Okay. I just want to ask you, no, 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 it's just, I mean, uh, public broadcasting matters to me. We have oh, to right, me too. But we have to take with us the yeah. people who are screaming fake news at us. Yeah, yeah. We, because if we lose them to the predations of the Murdoch Empire and conspiracy theorists oh, yeah, and absolutely. Telegraph, then we're in the shit, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Forgive me for saying that on the telly, but it's public broadcasting so we can be a little bit... Yeah. Now, right, one final question. Sure. Uh, can you win next election? Yes. Really? Absolutely. Do you know, 20, the first thing I'll say here, look, the starting point for an assessing any general election, the baseline is not 2020. Just in the same way the baseline for any experience is not the last three years. It's been extraordinary and unprecedented. And all the other words no one wants to hear again. This will be a classic NMP election. And Labor has demonstrated its ability to win those classic MMP elections yeah, because didn't. we campaign on things that matter to people and we have the opportunity now to demonstrate that we've got the experience, we've managed the crisis and made progress but also in these times when people are rightly worried about the economy, we have one of the strongest in the world and I will campaign hard on that. The Prime Minister speaking to us yesterday at the National Party Conference, Dr Shane Retty sitting on the other side of the studio watching that. Uh, so I'll be interested in his take on it and his belief on what is going to happen next year. If you want to contact Q&A, please, Kōrero Mai. These are our main platforms. Hit us up on email. We are still on Twitter. I think we all still have a blue tick as well. For the time being, we can't afford the eight bucks. And yes, we're still on Facebook too. After the break, Te Ake Fire Order. Te Ake Fire Order. The Māori Health Authority is here. Will it stay? Nationals, Dr Shane Retty. We have an extended interview with him live coming up. Welcome back. It has been a horror winter for the health system. Thank goodness we're in spring. Waiting lists long, hospitals overflowing, the workforce understaffed and demoralised, and above it all there's been big reforms, enormous reforms taking place. So if the government changes next year, and remember the election is roughly 12 months away, maybe less, what's National going to do about it? I'm joined now by National's health spokesperson, Dr Shane Reti Morena. Kia ora rawatu. Thank you for joining us. Morena, John. Good to speak with you. Uh, let's talk about Te Whatu Ora Health New Zealand. Mm-hmm. How's it going? Uh, look, I think they're struggling, which is a bit of a challenge when you think that they were uh, announced two years ago. So they'd had two years to hit the ground running on 1 July, uh, tens of millions of Ernst Young consulting fees. And yet uh, the interim plan that came out a a week ago uh, said, look, we're not going to be able to fully deploy the health reforms for another two years. How can that be? Is that the pandemic? Surely surely that's the pandemic. No, pandemic can't be blamed on everything. And by the way, during the pandemic, there were choices. We could have built 
ICU beds during the pandemic, we didn't. And because we didn't, lists had to be cancelled, which partly explains the waiting list. So it is a contribution, of course I accept that. But there were choices that also could have been made that could have changed the situation we find ourselves in. What would you undo? If you find yourself Health <laughs> Minister in roughly a year's time, what would you mm, undo? Mm. So what the sector has told us is that they're exhausted, they're tired. And if we're successful and when we land next year, what they've said is, please don't do major structural change. We're just too tired. And so what we've said is, we'll land and we'll see what's working and what's not working. What I will undo is the Māori Health Authority. I will disestablish the Māori Health Authority for several reasons. First of all, an entity that in its establishment documents says that there will be no benefits in the first five years, I struggle with that. Māori are going to need gains a lot quicker than in five years' time. And when I raised this in select committee with presenters who came to the committee and said to them, what are your expectations of a Māori health authority? They said, within the first year, we expect to be seeing benefits. And when I fleshed that out a bit more and said, what benefits? What would you expect? Nearly every single one said, mm, vaccination, immunisation. I'd expect a Māori health authority in year one to be improving the immunisation rates for Māori. So I want to interrupt <coughs> then. So are you opposed to the Māori health authority, te akafai order, per se, are you opposed to its very existence or are you saying its performance is inadequate? Several things. Its performance is inadequate and as it's set up is also going to create problems. There's a significant conflict of interest for the Māori Health Authority. So it's a commissioner of services, okay, so it purchases services, but at the same time it's a monitor of Māori health inequities across the system. That is, it will be monitoring itself, it will be marking its own exam, and that conflict of interest was unresolved coming out of select committee. I want That's to, going to be a problem for I it. I want to go back to the National, uh, health, uh, sorry, the National Party Health <laughs> Discussion document released in 2019. Oh, this was a really good document because you laid out explicitly what you stand mm. for. Now, this was pre the Akafai order, right? The Māori Health Authority. Mm. Māori Health, I'm <laughs> quoting you to you. Mm. National will address the discrepancies and health outcomes faced by our Māori communities. Good for National. How will you do that? Absolutely, and I will stand on those statements. How will you do it? Very simply, what we'll do is we'll have a Māori Health Directorate with, inside the Ministry of Health. And when I look last to win a Māori Sorry, Health what does Directorate... That mean? What does that even mean? Oh, it's a strategic directorate inside the Ministry, and, setting, and setting strategy. And if we look back to when that was last effective, that was in Tariana Tūdia's hands. And that wonderful document here, Korawai Oranga, which really set Māori Health strategy, that was the last time, in my view, we saw a really effective Māori Health Directorate that made changes. So... Do you have an issue with the Akafai order per se? Do, do, do you oppose what we might describe as the co-governance aspect of it? Do oh. you oppose a by Māori, for Māori, separate Māori health entity? I do not oppose by Māori, for Māori, but that entity needs to be inside of one health system. Why? Because what we know is that the benefits are inside one health system, and what we also know is that the... Sorry to oh, interrupt, but what uh, benefits? Let's talk well, about Māori life expectancy. What's the difference between your life expectancy and my life expectancy? Let's go in and see two newborn babies today up the road at Auckland Hospital, which would be a pretty lovely thing to do. Mm. One is Māori, one is Pākehā. Mm. Explain to the Māori child, the mm. Māori baby, why his or her life expectancy is seven years shorter than the Pākehā. Mm. And so this, this talks to uh, why exactly, though those co-determinants of health primarily, because let's be clear, that's actually the things that will change Māori health outcomes. It's not actually a Māori health authority. It'll be income, it'll be employment, it'll be education, it'll be housing. That's actually what's going to change that child's outcome. But 
the inequities for Māori around cancer and around cardiac disease, they have an acuteness. They need to be addressed here now. And how do we address but, them? Oh, we address them inside of a Māori Health uh, Directorate, inside <laughs> the uh, Ministry of Health. It's, it's what worked in the past to some degree. We need to do better, I get that. I don't disagree with the inequities. I've published on them, for goodness sake. I agree with them, but I disagree with the pathway towards them. Why aren't we, and, I, and I've asked the <laughs> Prime Minister this question many times when I was interviewing her on breakfast, mm. why aren't we angrier about this stuff? Isn't it strange that we live in a country, mm. and strange isn't strong enough as a word, mm. isn't it terrible where we live in a country where the indigenous people have a seven year shorter life expectancy than people who look like me. Why aren't we sadder, angrier, more upset about that and more determined to do something mm, about it? That's a good question. And I want to shout out to the um, Māori Health uh, research people, uh, Paparangi, for example, who bring this information forward, whether we give that enough voice and therefore with enough voice comes enough resources and attention, that that's a matter that we need to work on. But your, your point is well made. This, in, in, a, in a first world country, to have these sort of inequities is unacceptable. So what, what, what would National do about it? It's not just a directorate in the Ministry of Health, is, it? is that it? It needs strategic direction inside the Ministry of Health to actually address these inequities. It needs several things also. It needs targets. It needs accountability. It needs a range of things, and that is best delivered from a strategic directorate inside the Ministry of Health. Do targets work? You talked about targets back uh, it, it just prior to the last <coughs> election, and I look back at what you were saying then. It's fairly similar to what you're saying now, mm -hmm. and the Association of Medi Salary Medical Specialists put out a media release. Now, we should say they're a union, right? They're the doctor's mm -hmm. union. Saying national health targets, no magic bullet. Do targets work? Targets work. Why? Uh, they work because they focus attention, they focus resources, and they focus accountability. They hold me accountable, they hold providers accountable. If we look at the, that part of the system that I think is most struggling, which at the moment is emergency departments, and a big shout out to the ED docs and nurses who are on duty today, understaffed, working hard. Th thank you for turning up today. But if we look there, their team, Dr John Bonning, who was a, a spokesperson uh, for ED, absolutely, unequivocally, we need to reintroduce or refocus health targets. They make a difference. And I'd put this to you. How do you think the COVID response went without health targets, by the way? So what happens if people aren't meeting the health targets? What would National do? So uh, that's the accountability measure that I would have for myself as a potential uh, overseer of the system and the providers as well. But what we know is... Sorry, sorry, I don't understand what that means. The accountability measure equals what action? Oh, the accountability means I'm accountable to the New Zealand public. Uh, I'm accountable to the leader. I'm accountable for that target. So if the targets aren't being met, you as Minister would do what? Uh, I will then be... Uh, in a position where I would need to redirect resources, I would expect that I would be answerable to my caucus and I'll be answerable to New Zealanders. That's what accountability means. Redirect resources, you mean spend more? I would redirect resources from where I might not be getting effective uh, spend. And, uh, and, wh and where is that, where you're not getting effective spend? Oh, well, shall we start with the uh, $20 million of uh, vaccines that were put into the incinerator because they expired? The uh, measles catch-up program, the botched measles catch-up program? That? 20 million for um, the uh, expired vaccines, 30 million for the botched measles catch-up program. Those are just starting points. But 486 million in health reform in layers and layers and layers of bureaucracy. Will you attack the health bureaucracy? I need a public service that has capacity. 
Uh, this is not an attack on the health bureaucracy at all. This is what uh, uh, this is a, a guideline, this is a direction of travel that I'll hold myself accountable for targets and I will build the capacity to make sure that we achieve those targets. Okay, so you're going to, you're going to sigh through the health bureaucracy where you determine that it is not doing what it needs to do and is not providing value for money? Where it's ineffective and not meeting outcomes. It's still not enough mm. to spend extra money, is it? On top of a tax cut, is National standing by its tax cut? 39, uh, the 39 cents in the dollar going for people over 180,000? You've heard the leader and the finance minister say we will stand by that position. There is Can you do all of this? Can you spend and cut taxes? Well, what we can do is we can raise the health budget every single year and we've made a commitment to doing that. So people should be very reassured that you've heard the leader and our finance spokesman say we will raise the health budget every single year. Let's talk about getting a workforce. And I, boy, I, boy, I was just reading the interim government policy uh, statement on health, which I know you will have read. Uh, Priority four, which I know you will have agreed with, is developing the uh, agreed with is developing the health workforce of the future. Why the hell don't we have a health workforce? And yeah. let's set aside the immigrants. I'm talking about successive governments who haven't developed a health workforce. Just by the way, that's an example of the layers of bureaucracy. Because look at that as an accountability document. You start with a letter of expectation from the minister. Then you have the interim government policy statement. Then you have Health New Zealand's charter. Then you have the health plan which was announced. And then a statement of performance expectations. Surely your statement is, we will stop people from getting ill. And if you're ill, we'll treat you in a timely and quality fashion instead of all of these five documents. Different question, but just saying. You've asked about health workforce. All pathways at the moment tend to head towards health workforce. We're really struggling. We're struggling to retain, we're struggling to bring people you know, into New Zealand. <coughs> the health workforce has been a problem for many years, and in our hands as well, actually, even previously in government. Uh, we struggled with health workforce. COVID has sort of made it worse. There are solutions to health workforce that we could do today, though, John. And they are? <coughs> Several things. First of all, there's three buckets in you health want, workforce. Do you want me to talk for a bit while you have a glass of water? I'm going to talk, and I'll tell you what I'm going to do while you have a glass of water, because there's nothing worse than having a, a frog in your throat. And that is, I want to say, so what you're saying, and I've seen the media releases that came out on Friday, I think, is that we need to get people in, right? We need to work to get nurses in to the country. But boy, this is a competitive market. Everyone's in the same position. So let's look at a graduate registered nurse in New Zealand, $60,000 a year, same job in Australia, $80,000 a year. How the hell do we compete in a global market? So several things. There's three buckets, three sets of levers that we can pull. Uh, the first is the offshore bucket. And that initially, that talks to retaining what we've got, which is around terms and conditions and wages and salaries. But then secondly, no one understands why we haven't turned on the day one pathway to residency for internationally qualified nurses. I, I just can't think of a rational example, neither can anyone else. We could do that today, it would cost you nothing. Do that today, turn that on. Are you persuaded, I'm really interested in this, are you persuaded that that would be enough to get people to work for $20,000 a year less here than they can get in Australia? Uh, it would be a contribution because what they're saying to us is that pathway to residency is really important. But you raise a really valid point and that's around uh, retention component almost as well as recruitment for how we compare for wages and salary mm. with Australia for what example. Are we, what are we doing about that? Well we, we never have and I don't know if we're ever going to. It's our terms and conditions that people, people come to New Zealand and unfortunately the nurses look in at the moment, they see a pay sector freeze, they see a minister who's um, not collaborating well uh, with his sector, they see what's called the Safer Nursing Accord, which means if you're on an orthopaedic ward, people can't readily turn themselves, you need a higher number of nurses. That was supposed to be deployed 100% by June last year. All they see is hard work and an unwelcoming environment. So we're not competing well with the Australias, the Canadas at the moment.
We have a second bucket. There are hundreds of nurses, hundreds of doctors here who, who aren't able to register. How can that be? They, they live here. They're, permanent, they're already contributing, but they're driving Uber Eats down Queen Street today. How can that be? We must be able to find a pathway. And then to come to your first point, we need to turn on our own homegrown, culturally competent pipeline, increase the medical intake, increase nursing intake. <clears throat> I just want to tick a couple of things off before you go. Decide, which is the National Abortion Telehealth Service, right? So this is the government's National Abortion Telehealth Service, which gives people in the first 10 weeks of pregnancy access to clinical uh, consultations, etc., over the phone, essentially. Will National continue to fund Decide? Yes. Full stop? Yes. No ifs, buts or maybes? No ifs, buts. We have said that we will not change our abortion settings, and we believe in increasing access to health uh, for New Zealanders, and this is a health access. I want to go back to where we started. I just want to end on this, and I'm just hearing that my earpiece go shuffle, 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 which, which means I've gone long, but Te Whatu Ora Health New Zealand. Might you stick with that? When we land, we will stay with it because the sector has said, don't do major structural change, but we'll be certainly more outcome-focused than what it's projecting at the moment. Dr Shane Ritty, I always enjoy talking to you. Oh, thank you. Thank Pleasure. you so much for joining us this morning. We really appreciate Pleasure it. Pleasure to speak with you too. Yeah, John. thank you for coming in. Dr Shane Ritty, National Health Spokesperson. After the break, where you should be paying attention as the United States goes to the polls. Stay with us. We're looking at the midterms next. Welcome back to Q&A. Well, we are off to America now. If you think politics is divided here across the Pacific. A crunch midterm election is about to determine which major party holds the balance of power for the next two years. Now remember Joe Biden, the Democratic Party president, is not up for re-election. This isn't a presidential election. I suspect you all know this. It's the two chambers of Congress, the House and the Senate, uh, which are both in the balance. So to talk about what we should watch out for just before we came on air, I spoke to our excellent One News US correspondent Anna Burns Francis and started by asking her, she's going from state to state to survey how the midterms are going, where on earth she is right now. John, we are on the outskirts of Little Rock, Arkansas. So Little Rock is quite blue, quite democratic, but you only have to go about half an hour south where we are and it starts looking pretty red. And that's why we're here in this state because this is a Republican-controlled state. We started off looking at transgender rights and the restrictions to transgender rights in states like Arkansas. And then we've actually realised once we got here, the story is a whole lot bigger. There are restrictions on a whole lot of things. Healthcare, uh, girls and boys being allowed to play sport at school if they don't identify with the gender they were born with. Uh, abortion rights, of course, that's a big talking point, not just in Arkansas, but in a whole bunch of Republican-controlled states. Even book bannings in Arkansas, uh, words that have been banned. They're going through the next legislative session looking at banning words like gender dysphoria. So this is going to be a story tonight about a whole bunch of things that Republican-controlled legislatures have done to restrict people's rights across America. Gosh, that's extraordinary. This is the place that Bill Clinton came from, of course. AB, if I, we're going to look at three states today, right? Uh, in these extraordinary midterms, where it seems to me anything is still possible, although reading the tea leaves, maybe the Republicans are just nosing out in front. But we want to start in Georgia. That is a very red Republican state. It's starting to kind of turn purple, isn't it? What's happening in Georgia, Anna? 
It sure is. This is really turning out to be a battle between Raphael Warnock, he's the Democratic candidate, and a guy named Herschel Walker, who is quite a well-known former footballer here, but not a particularly popular Republican candidate. Uh, of course, one of the big talking points this election is abortion rights. Mm. And that does, if you look at the statistics, overwhelmingly uh, affect people of African-American heritage. And so for them, this is a big issue. Access to health care, access to women's rights to an abortion is a big talking point. We've got two blokes discussing the topic and we'll decide it for the women of their state. Uh, but Republicans know that this is a bit of a sticky issue and some of them are being a little careful with their wording. Not Herschel Walker. He's been quite open about what he'd be pushing for if he makes it into national government. Well, there's not a national ban on abortion right now, and I think that's a problem. We uh, keep talking about things like that. Right now, I'm for life, and I'm no, not going to make an excuse for it. Because, of course, this, the Supreme Court decision, which rolled back Roe v. Wade, pushed the decision around abortion and access to abortion to states. Well, now we see those Republican senators or politicians going for the Senate saying that actually the next thing they're looking at is a federal ban on abortion. So this decision to push it back to states will have much bigger consequences coming up. And some Republicans are actually trying to divert the issue. They're trying to not perhaps reveal quite where they stand on such a divisive topic instead they're pushing it back to Joe Biden's economy and blaming that instead. I would just tell you to talk to Herschel Walker about his policies on abortion. I'm staying focused on my race and what I can control and trying to help them fight through Joe Biden's inflation. The economy, of course, is the other big talking point of this election because that's the one that hits people in the pocket every day. At the gas station, at the grocery store, that's where they're really feeling the pinch, particularly in states here. We just came across the state line uh, from Tennessee. Before that, we were in Mississippi. The price of petrol is enormously high compared to what Americans were paying this time last year or even the year before, and they're really feeling that. Americans drive a long way, big distances, and they are really feeling the pinch in an economy that often sees low wages as well. Wow, that is Georgia. We're only just getting started here. Let's go to Pennsylvania. And I was just reading the New York Times, three presidents sweeping in there, right? So Biden, Obama, Trump, all heading to Pennsylvania, ABF. It is a battleground. Just like we saw in 2020, this is one of those seats that the Democrats must get because they need to if they want to hold on to their control of the Senate and of the House. These sorts of states like Pennsylvania really matter to them. And it looks like they should be successful. But they might not have been a couple of weeks ago if you'd looked at the polling because, of course, John Fetterman, who is the candidate there, he actually suffered a stroke a few months ago. So this has also brought the health care issue into the spotlight, of course, Americans' access to health care and really into their lounges and into their living rooms, seeing the impact of what health care in America can bring to someone who is trying to overcome the uh, disability of a stroke and then live a meaningful and contributive life to American politics. John Fetterman had this debate against a very polished former TV host, Dr Mehmet Oz, uh, take a look at how he managed. He wasn't a strong debater to begin with, but take a look at how he managed. I'm also having to talk about something called the Oz rule, that if he's on TV, he's lying. He did that during his career on his TV show. He's done that during his campaign about lying about our record here. And he's also lying probably during this debate. And let's also talk about the elephant in the room. I had a stroke. 
he's never let me forget that. Wow, ABF. Uh, if politics is meant to be about the best of us, then America's in a spot of trouble, isn't it? Uh, John Fetterman pointing out the obvious that he's had a stroke, and as you say, Dr Oz has prosecuted him for that throughout this campaign. Let's move to a place where it may even be nastier, Anna, and that is Arizona. And if you look at the comparison, what we see in Arizona is the same thing we see in Pennsylvania. We see the everyman against the elite. Of course, Dr Oz, the television host, and Carrie Lake in Arizona, the former Fox television host. And this is where it gets really interesting with American politics at the moment, is that we are really seeing this movement towards popularity, towards a really polished performance. The actual message and the content doesn't really matter so much. It's about really getting what we saw with Donald Trump, of course, the rise of the celebrity politics that it's being able to get people to back you and follow along and really get them behind your cause, whatever that might be. And we're really seeing that, particularly in Arizona, uh, where one of the candidates, as I said, Carrie Lake, isn't even confirming that she will accept the results of the election unless it goes her way. Will you accept the results of your election, Ms. Lake? I'm... I'm running against a twice convicted racist who cost the state taxpayers $3 million because of her hatred for people of color. She paid a woman of color in her office $30,000 less than men doing the same job. Last week, we learned she held a slave auction, a mock slave auction in high school. We saw her running from a black reporter hiding in the bathroom from him. I'm not going to lose this election because I'm going to talk to Katie Hobbs. Never, I'm going to talk to Katie Hobbs right after we're done. will never elect a racist like Katie Hobbs. My question is, will you accept the results of your election in November? I'm going to win the election, and I will accept that result. Wow. ABF, how divided is America? And America has always been divided, so that's a silly question. But how bitter now are the divisions? How great is the enmity between red and blue? The problem you see, John, that that message now is really entrenched between mm. Democrats and Republicans where you have this argument that if a Republican loses, it's because there was cheating. Mm. And that is the issue, because that effectively means a Democrat cannot or will not win. It's either an illegal win or it didn't happen at all. And that's going to be the problem come next week, because nothing has been done since the last election to reassure the American voting public that election results can be relied on and that there is election integrity. And some of the blame has to go to Democrats for that. Joe Biden and the White House and his administration have not done a good enough job of selling that idea to the American public, whether it was possible for them to or not. And the Republicans have deliberately gone down this cause of misleading the American public about the big lie of the 2020 election and what it means for this election coming up. There is no way that if Democrats start winning this election come next Tuesday, Wednesday, your time, that the results will go any better than the rhetoric that we saw come out of 2020. Well, that's a depressing prospect, isn't it? Anna Burns-Francis, who is our excellent US correspondent, of course, covering the midterms for One News. Stick around. Q&A will be right back. Just before we go this morning, we can't leave without a quick word about the mighty Black Ferns who got up by just a single point in that magnificent, quite extraordinary Rugby World Cup semi-final against France, France last night. That final next week against England, undefeated, I think their run is 30 on the trot, uh, is going to be extraordinary. 
Go the Ferns and congratulations on everything you have achieved so far. Wonderful team on the field and off it. But from us, Kuamutu, that's Q&A for this week from the Q&A team and it's such a pleasure to be working for them uh, and with them. Thanks for watching. Nga mihi, kia koutou, ina kariri, hei tērā wiki. See you next Sunday at night. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.